Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Acts chapter 4. I'm going to do verses 23 through 37 and finish out the chapter. In our last audio, which covered Acts 4, 1 through 22, we saw Peter and John, two of the apostles, arrested by the Sanhedrin with the lame man who had been born lame, who had been born lame and who had been healed at the beautiful gate, standing there at the Sanhedrin. Peter and James made the Sanhedrin look pretty bad, and the Sanhedrin said, okay, you, we'll let you go. We can't put you in jail, but you can't teach about Jesus anymore. So here we are. we'll pick up the story in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. After they were released, that's Peter and John, they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priest and the elders had said to them. Their own people, that would, well, that could be the other ten apostles, or it could be the 120 who were probably there together at Pentecost, who'd received the, the first Pentecostal outpouring of the Holy Spirit, or it could be the whole multitude of people who had believed. By now, there's between five and 8,000, either 5,000 or 8,000 people who've gotten saved. That seems a little unwieldy to me. I think they probably went back to the other apostles. Now, where did they go? They went probably to the same upper room where the apostles met before, remember, where they had chosen Matthias to replace Judas, who had hung himself. That's in Acts 1.13. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs. We don't, it doesn't really matter. Nobody, somewhere in Jerusalem they went. And also people point out they might have met a lot of time a lot of times in the house of Mary. That's John Mark's mother, the Gospel of Mark's author, his mother, Mary. Acts 12.12 12 says this, when uh, it says he, I think that's Peter, went, I can't remember now, but he, somebody went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. So you see, Mark's mother Mary had a little house church going there in her house. Now, the, Peter and John went and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. What did the chief priests and elders said to Peter and John? They said, you can't preach or teach Jesus anymore. That's in verse 18. So we go to Acts, 24, Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 26. When they heard this, that means the people who were assembled, either the apostles or the 120, whoever. When they heard this, they all raised their voices to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers assembled together against the Lord and against his Messiah. They pray to God, they call him Master, then I translates it as sovereign lord which i think it has a better feel to it sovereign lord you're the one who made the heaven called him they mentioned the that the kings of the earth had taken counsel against the lord and his messiah the messiah of course means anointed one that's the hebrew that means anointed one christos christ means anointed one in greek now who were they quoting here they were quoting david who wrote psalm 2 the psalm is anonymous actually but the Jews ascribed the psalm to David, and internal evidence confirms that David was the author, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. And so the, the apostles here who are quoting David are assuming that it was David who wrote the, the psalm. And notice that they say, you said, through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of your father David. There they acknowledge explicitly the inspiration of the Old Testament psalm there. They weren't liberals who try to explain everything away according to their narrow rationalist minds. Now I want to talk about something that is a little bit more fuzzy than that. In verse 25, we have two people that rage and plot futile things. And in verse 26, we have two peoples. 
And verse 27, the same thing. So we have a couplet in verses 25, 26, and 27. And 25, it's A, the Gentiles, and B, the peoples. Well, A is obviously Gentiles. B, the peoples, is that the Jews or the Gentiles? Hard to say. And then in verse 26, we got two peoples who are assembled against the Lord. A, kings of the earth. B, rulers. Kings of the earth could be rulers of the land. That could be Jews. Rulers, that could be rulers of the Gentiles or rulers of the Jews. Not clear. But now we get down to verse 27, which is our next verse. I haven't read it yet. Let me read it now. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. There we have another couplet. Gentiles A and the people of Israel B. And that's clear as light. The first part of the couple is Gentiles. The second part is Israel. Now, if we go back and make a parallel then between verses 25 and 26, we can make these ambiguous statements clear. So in verse 25, who did the raging is Gentiles. That is clear. And then the peoples, what peoples? Is that just a repetition of the Gentiles? That's what Barnes' commentary, Albert Barnes says. Hebrew parallelism is just repeating the same thing, two different ways of saying the same thing. So it's, why did the Gentiles rage and why did the Gentile peoples plot futile things? Yeah, well, that makes sense. Except where are the Jews? They were the ones who did most of the persecution. That's the problem with Barnes' view. So I'm going to take it as saying, why did the Gentiles rage and why did the Jewish people plot futile things? We go to verse 26. The kings of the earth. Well, that sounds like Gentiles. That fits our parallel pretty good. It can't. It could be rulers of the land, of course, but because kings is, I think it's Basileus, I think it's that is here in this verse, that is ambiguous. It could be rulers or it could be kings. And earth is gay, which could be earth or land. But I'm going to assume it's Gentiles here, the kings of the earth, the Gentile kings, take their stand and the Jewish rulers assemble because they're often called the rulers, the synagogue rulers, the Sanhedrin rulers. That makes sense. So now we got that same parallel, Gentiles and rulers. All right, so now what did the Gentiles and the Jews do? I'm going to read it straight through here. They raged. They plot futile things. They took their stand against the Messiah. They assembled together against the Lord or conspired together against him. So you see the persecuting fury of of the two political enemies that most directly affected Jesus and his disciples, the Jews and the Romans. Now, I think that that fits very well with an Orthodox Preterist interpretation of the book of Revelation, Who's the land beast? That's the Jews. Who's the sea beast? That's the Romans. In fact, as you go all the way through the book of Revelation, you see these two entities persecuting the martyred saints. I like that. That's sort of literary, but I like that. What I said that Peter was quoting David, Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. I'll read it. You'll see it's a pretty close quote. Why do the nations rebel and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord. And it's an ordered one. And, of course, David was probably talking about somebody's taking, some of these uh, peoples are taking their stand against David, who was anointed as king. So the anointed one was referring to David when he wrote it. Of course, David is typical of the anti-type Jesus. My notes on Psalm 2 say that, as I looked into this, who was David thinking about? Some people speculate it was the Jebusites who David had just beaten. It's not really clear. And, of course, this gets into the fact, does, Jesus, does David know he's prophesying about the Messiah in the future, or is he talking about himself? And then the, the church then took his words and applied them prophetically to Jesus as history unfolded. I won't get into that thorny theological problem because I don't have an answer to it yet. We now go to verse 27 in Acts chapter 4. 4. This is the people, the people who were reported to by Peter and John. Probably, I'm going to just say it's the other ten apostles. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. 
that Herod is Herod Antipas. There's so many Herods in the Bible, I have used up the few remaining brain cells in my head. I've expended them trying to keep all the Herods straight, and it's very difficult. You got Herod the Great, then his son Herod Antipas, who ruled Judea, who, excuse me, who ruled uh, Galilee and Perea, and then Herod's brother, also the son of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas's brother, Herod Philip I, who ruled Trachonitis, I think it was called, to the east of the Sea of Galilee. And then, of course, you got Herod Philip II, who was Herodias's wife and who got who got his wife stolen from him by Herod Antipas. And then, of course, you got Herod Agrippa I, the guy who in Acts 12 took too much glory when the sun sparkled off his silver. I forgot what the story was, but it was in an amphitheater in Caesarea, and he was struck with some kind of intestinal disease and died a horrible death with worms. That was Herod Agrippa I, if I recall correctly. And then Herod Agrippa II, I think he was the good Herod. He was the one that was ruling Israel at the time that Paul got arrested at the end of his third journey. So you got all those Herods. I would suggest to you that you just get Wikipedia out and look them all up and get them straight in your mind. I, I did the best I could. I think I've got them in my mind now, but I wouldn't bet my life on it. i got to go back and check. But at any rate, we know this one was Herod Agrippa, excuse me, Herod Antipas and Pontius Pilate, because we know that those were the two Jewish rulers who were, uh, who who moderated the crucifixion of Jesus in Jerusalem. Herod was in town because of the festival, staying in Pontius Pilate's palace there, in Herod the Great's palace. And he actually interviewed Jesus once before Jesus was crucified. And that's what's being referred to here, Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Jews and the Romans, the Gent and with their people, not just the leaders, Herod. And the, Herod was the leader, excuse me, I didn't mean to say that, Herod is that well Herod was the Jewish leader and Pontius Pilate was the Roman leader and so it's not just the leaders but the people that they were leading Pontius Pilate led the Gentiles and Herod led the people of Israel so everybody's involved in this murder of Jesus they assembled together there they conspired together against your holy servant Jesus the NIV study Bible says servant could be translated child your holy child Jesus oh I think it sounds better to say servant just my personal opinion whom you anointed, of course, Jesus was anointed at prophet, priest, and king. John Gill says that he was anointed at his incarnation when he was born, when the Holy Spirit impregnated Mary. He was anointed at his baptism when the Holy Spirit fell upon him after he was baptized, and he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. So, and notice that in Israel, all prophets, priests, and kings were routinely anointed with oil upon taking their office. So, the analogy is clear here. And so the apostles interpret David very clearly. They saw what was going on. They saw prophecy being revealed in front of their eyes. We go now to verse 28 in Acts 4. Well, I need to read the end of verse 27 again. The Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, you'll notice it's not clear that who's doing the doing here. Who was anointed? Was it Jesus who was anointed to do whatever God had predestined? We read it this way, verse 27. Your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do that which God's hand and God's hand predestined. Or is it the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together to do whatever God's hand and plan had predestined? Now, we get into some theological controversy here because depending on how you interpret this verse determines whether you come down as an Arminian or as a Calvinist. Now here Clark, Adam Clark, who is an, a convinced Arminian, he says that it's 
God anointed Jesus, Jesus to do whatever God predestined. In other words, God predestined Jesus' ministry, which is a good thing. So there's no problem with God predestined evil. Now, that's true. But I will say this, that you, oh, you, you don't get around the problem of predestination because Jesus had free will because he was a human, and humans have free will, and Jesus had free will. But God predestined him to do everything in his ministry. You still got to reconcile freedom and predestination. And, of course, it takes a greater mind than mine to do that. In fact, I don't think anybody can really do it. But I like the, the compatibilistic view which says that both, everything you do is free, but it works in conjunction with God's predestination so that your freedom works out to what God planned. In fact, I've held, held that view ever since I was in college. I didn't know it had a name until I started poking around on Wikipedia and started reading some philosophy, and I realized, oh, by the way, it's not just Christians that have this problem. Aristotle brought it up. He said if the, the unmoon mover knows who's going to win that sea battle the next day, does that mean that the people in the sea battle have freedom to fight? Hard question. But at any rate, that's what Adam Gill, that's what uh, Adam Clark says. Now, here's Adam, uh, John Gill. He is the Calvinist. He says that the Jews and the Gentiles is who fulfilled God's predestined purpose, even though they didn't mean, they didn't mean to. They were doing evil, but it all worked together for God's good. Let me read Gill's quote. Gill's the Calvinist, remember. Quote, God's decrees are from eternity. There's nothing comes to pass in time, but what he is before time determined should be done either by affecting it himself or doing it by others or suffering it to be done, as in the case here. This neither makes God the author of sin nor excuses the sinful actions of men or infringes the liberty of their wills in acting. Of course not, because we're not robots. We have free will, and God lets us have free will, but He, in, in the suffering of our free will or in the permission of our free will, he lets us do evil things, but he takes that evil and works it out. So, good results. And, of course, the here, it was evil to nail Jesus on a cross, but the good th thing that resulted from it is the salvation of the world. So, I take Gill's view on that. I think that 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 the, the who's doing what God predestined was the Gentiles and the people of Israel who assembled together to nail Jesus on the cross. That's who did what God had planned, what your hand and your plan and your hand, God, you're the Father's hand and you're the Father's plan had predestined. It was done by the people of Israel and the Romans, in my humble opinion. Acts 4, 29 through 30. And now, Lord, consider their threats. Remember, they had just been threatened by the Sanhedrin. We're going to beat you and scourge you and so forth. Don't, don't talk about Jesus. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your message with complete boldness. Now, they had to pray. Grant means they're praying. Please, God, give it to me. That's another way of saying we're praying. Praying, God. That your slaves, we're your slaves, and we're about to get persecuted by these nasty Jewish leaders. So they prayed that they may speak your message with complete boldness. And I'm telling you, this is one thing that proves the gospel high in the world. And these ignorant fishermen who had just been scattered and hunkered down in a house for eight days after the resurrection, scared to death, how could they go out and challenge the whole might of the Jewish rabbinic government? And do it with boldness. They did it. That, that prayer was answered. Grant that your slaves may speak your message with complete boldness. Verse 30. While you stretch out your hand for healing signs and wonders to be performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Now you notice that as soon as they talked about boldness, what's the very next thing they mentioned? Healing signs and wonders. Oh, I can hear John MacArthur now. 
Oh, no, no, it's only got to be the Word. Can't have healing. People look for the healing. They won't look for teaching, and they'll get hung up on healing, and they'll look for healing too much. You know, it's interesting how the early apostles never had all the hang-ups that cessationists have. They never have the negative attitude toward healing that cessationists have. You will not find that in the Scriptures. Signs are signposts to point people to heaven. Wonders to be performed through the name, of course, that means the authority of, of your holy servant Jesus. That phrase servant reminds one of the suffering servant passages in Isaiah. Isaiah 52, 13 through 14. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were appalled at you. His appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. The word servant is also used in Matthew 12, verses 16 through 18. He warned them, Jesus warned the disciples, not to make him known so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here is my servant whom I have chosen. My beloved in whom my soul delights, I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. So the apostles are quoting Isaiah again and they had been taught in Matthew. or Actually, they weren't taught there. Matthew was quoting, quoting Isaiah here in Matthew famous suffering servant passages. So Jesus is called a servant. That's sort of a word that, that should, if you're familiar with the scriptures, you should immediately think, oh, the suffering servant passages of Isaiah. Acts chapter 4, verse 31, when they had prayed, remember they're praying for boldness, signs, and wonders. When they had prayed, the place where they assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak God's message with boldness. Now, the place, again, we don't know where it was. It could either be the same upper room where they were before, or it could be somebody else's house. We don't know. John Gill says that when it says when they had prayed, you could translate that as while they were praying. The place was shaken. Now, there's an interesting thing here. It gets into a controversy between cessationists and... I shouldn't say cessationists. I should say between Pentecostals and non-Pentecostals because it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's the same terminology that's used in Acts chapter 2 to refer to the initial filling of the Holy Spirit, baptism of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and the word I think is used in in the other Pentecostal passages in Acts also. But the word is also used, like in Ephesians, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And again, it all comes down to the tense. The aorist tense here is aorist. I should say the aorist aspect is aorist. And they were all filled. You could translate that as they were all, having been filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak God's message with boldness. Now, I will... the. Non-Pentecostals say, see there, a filling of the Holy Spirit is not a unique, a unique experience. That would be expressed by Adam Clark, quote, he believes that their intermittent fillings of the Holy Spirit, they're not unique to Pentecost or to the Pentecostal passages in Acts. Here's his quote, though these disciples had received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, yet they were capable of larger communications and what they had then received it did not preclude the necessity of frequent supplies on emergent occasions. Indeed, one communication of the Spirit always makes way and disposes for another. I, I don't know how in the world he learned how to talk like that, but I guess it's a different century. But his point is, is that just because they got filled at Pentecost didn't mean they couldn't get filled again. And to be honest with you, that's what it sounds like in the verse. I mean, it really does. It sounds like they were filled at the time that they had prayed. That's that's probably what it what it refers to. And even though I hold a Pentecostal theology on a Pentecostal pneumatology, if I can put it that way, and I believe that there's there was a one time baptism of the Holy Spirit subsequent to conversion, I don't believe that precludes having other, shall we say, anointings as the charismatics say, or other fillings as the scripture says. I don't see any problem with that. I don't think that 
just because they're other feelings that that takes away with the unique receiving or baptism using other terms that's used in the book of acts but now john gill who was no charismatic as far as i know back in the 1800s he's he says that the feeling referred to a period in time like at pentecost a point in time not intermittent feelings but one feeling Here's his quote. With the gifts of the Holy Spirit, even with extraordinary ones, such as speaking with diverse tongues as before on the day of Pentecost. And this was the case not only of the apostles, but of the other ministers of the word, and it may be of the whole church. So he was saying, and what it could be that these apostles, it could. Now here's another possibility. It could be that the people who were being talked to had been saved, because there was 8,000 people saved. And we're not sure who the, Peter and John was spoken to. It could be that the other apostles got filled with the Holy Spirit like at Pentecost. Could be. We don't know. Now note that this prayer, oh God, grant us power, grant us signs, grant us wonders, grant us boldness. That prayer was immediately answered. The place was shaken. They started speaking with boldness. Now it says the place was shaken. I don't know what that means. Was there an earth tremor there as they prayed as God gave a sort of a object lesson say hey the power to shake this room is the same power you you guys are going to have to go out to preach with or maybe it just means all the people in the place were shaken with excitement and courage i'm not really sure i just looked up in the barnes commentary to see what he said about shaking his here's his quote the language here is suited to express the idea of an earthquake so i had the same idea as barnes did we go to acts chapter 4 verse 32 now the large group of those who believed were of one heart and one mind and no one said that any of his possessions were his own, but instead they held everything in common. Now, there were one heart and one mind. Now, this is my comment on that. People have really, really, really got to be united in spirit to share their possessions. I mean, you know, there's nothing that will create a fight faster than that. But they were so excited and so filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking with boldness and seeing healings and signs and wonders going on, they didn't care about their things. Now, this is said as a large group. Again, we've already got up to either 5,000 or 8,000 people, and they were probably holding everything in common outside the city in the countryside because it's hard to do that and have all that many people in the city. I used to wonder about that, and that never occurred to me. They could have just gone outside. I, I, I saw a movie, a Netflix movie called A.D., and that's exactly how they had it. Had the early Christians, they were living outside in a tent city. They held everything in common. This is, was mentioned also in Acts 2.44, that all the believers were together and held all things in common. Now, of course, this is not a pattern of early church practice. This is a one-off practice. A one-off practice is not a pattern. A pattern, by definition, has to have at least three, I would say, two or three, probably three events in order to call it a pattern. Now, there were some special circumstances that led to this unusual circumstance. First of all, all the visitors in Jerusalem had no settled homes or income. They were coming for the Pentecost festival. And they weren't just ordinary visitors. They were, they were not ordinary visitors at Pentecost. They were certain spiritual events that happened at Pentecost, namely the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and all the apostles going around witnessing and testifying. That's going to keep people there in Jerusalem longer, which means they are further away from their incomes and their homes. They had no place to stay. They had no money. So they needed, they had to help everybody, all the early Christians, Jewish Christians there, many of whom were going to go back to all parts of the empire, Roman Empire, to spread the gospel. But they didn't have any, they weren't Jerusalemites, so they had no jobs. They had no place to stay. And when you consider the fact that the Jewish population, the Jewish leaders, I'm sorry, the Jewish leaders, 
and some of the population probably, but especially the Jewish leaders, were hostile to the early Christians, so they would even need more need food and shelter. They were every day liable to persecution, as John Gill points out, and that sharing in common was therefore a means of self-defense. Another special situation that might have led to sharing in common was the fact that the Jews in the Christian Jews in Jerusalem knew that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. They had heard the Olivet Discourse when Jesus said in one generation, all these things, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And one of the things was that the temple would be destroyed, etc., etc. So, if Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, what's the point of owning something in a, in a doomed city? I think I'll just sell it and help the church out. John Gill says this, It is not to be drawn into a precedent or an example in after times, nor is ever any such thing proposed to the Christian churches or exhorted to by any of the apostles. So let's forget this idea that we're supposed to hold all things in common. There ain't nothing wrong with private property. The Bible teaches sharing, koinonia, sharing, giving, cheerful giving, giving to the poor, giving to itinerant ministries, but it never talks about having your stuff in common. And notice it was a voluntary sharing. Adam Clark points this out in Acts 5:4. We read this: "Wasn't it yours?" This is Paul talking, Peter, excuse me, talking to Ananias, who had some property and sold it. Then he told, then he 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 kept the money back from the apostles. Didn't say that he had the money to give the apostles. So Peter says to him, "Wasn't it yours while you Ananias possessed it?" So you possessed it. It was yours. You could have done with it what you want. And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? So the property was yours and the proceeds from the sale of the property were yours. It was yours. You could have kept it back. Nothing wrong with keeping it back and not holding everything in common. But lying about it, why is it that you plan this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men but to God. So the sin was that he lied about the proceeds, not that he didn't share the land. What he lied about was he kept part of the proceeds and then told Peter he had, he had turned it all over to the church when he hadn't. So he died for that. So, so, but anyway, that's very clear that Ananias could have kept that money. He could have kept the, it was, it was his. It was at your disposal. It was not the church's. So this was voluntary com communist, a uh, communist, excuse me. I hate to use that nasty word here on this tape. Voluntary communitarian practice. I noticed that the Jews in Jerusalem often helped people who came in for festivals, but the Christians went even further than that. Here's what the Jews did, quote from Adam Clark. At all the public religious feasts in Jerusalem, there was a sort of community of goods. No man at such time hired houses or beds in Jerusalem. All were lent gratis by the owners. So everything, it was like bed and breakfast or Airbnb with no fee. You just could stay in somebody's house. The same may be well supposed of their ovens, cauldrons, tables, spits, and other utensils. Also, provisions of water were made for them at the public expense. But the church went further than that. They not only shared, opened their houses for people to stay in, they sold their houses and gave them the money. Everything was like a family, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Family has all things in common. Well, sort of. Not completely. I mean, you know, I don't own my wife's nightgowns. I mean, they're hers. They're not mine. But still, the idea is that the, the, in the, in the overall, overall scheme of things, the father has the pot of money and he's in charge of it, like Peter was in charge of the apostles. And they had everything in common, and, and his money is the wife's money, and his money is the child's money. They all have access to it. Legally, they do. The father has to, supply, has to provide for the family. He has to support his wife. He has to. Now, in verse 32 here, we say, now the Lord, we see that 
Luke says, now the large group of those who believe with one heart and mind. This is not just a few people. This is a large group. As I mentioned earlier, it's between 5,000 and 8,000, depending on whether, well, Acts 4, 4 says this, but many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. That was the day before. And that 5,000 might include those at Pentecost, the 3,000 that got saved at Pentecost, in which case altogether there were 5,000, or it could have been 5,000 in addition in which case now, 5,000 plus 3,000 is 8,000. But at any rate, there was a ton of folks getting saved. Acts, verse 30, Acts 4, verse 33. And the apostles were giving testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. Now, you know, when he says great power, do you know what that means? That means miracles, exorcisms, healings. Miracles and exorcism, according to John Gill and Adam Clark. John Gill also adds words. I've got no problem with that. The words were powerful. The deeds that were done with the words were powerful. There's your pattern, folks. Preach the gospel. Do miracles, too. Oh, but I don't know how to do miracles. Have you ever prayed to do a miracle? You know, you can't ride. A, you can't say, I can't ride a bike if you never tried to ride a bike. It might be nice to start praying for some miracles. Quit listening to strange fire conferences. You notice the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned this in the last audio. The resurrection is the, one of the central themes of the gospel message, of the evangelist, evangelistic message. Resurrection. If Jesus wasn't resurrection, he, he resurrected, he didn't save us from our sins. He died on the cross, and all of our sins are nailed up on the cross as in ordinances. Uh, uh, all of our sins are nailed up there and gone. But if he didn't rise again from the dead, it didn't do us any good. Of course, we identify with that resurrection because we're in Christ. Christ rises, we rise too in newness of life. So that's the central part of the gospel. It's not just forgiveness of sins, folks. It's not just the crucifixion. It's also the resurrection. And I must confess, I was a little bit unbalanced when I was witnessing all those Chinese folks. I didn't mention the resurrection nearly as much as, as the New Testament apostles did. And I think it's a good thing for us to do that. And notice that the resurrection was the thing that the Sadducees who had grilled them in the early part of chapters 4 of the previous day, that the it was the Sadducees who were in charge of that little inquisition, and the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. So here the, the early apostles and evangelists are going out preaching the very thing that they were told to shut up about. Acts 4, verses 34 and 35. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. That's trust. This was then distributed for each person's basic needs, and note basic needs. Nobody got rich, but nobody got hungry either. When Christians share, there's no need for anyone to be poor. Now, notice they had to have somebody in charge of distribution. Later on, where is that in Acts chapter 6, a couple chapters from now, the apostles had to get some servants, doesn't call them deacons, but many people call them deacons, deacons in order to help dis dis distribute the goods so that the Hellenistic Jews got as much as the Jerusalem Jews. But right then, at this early stage, it was the apostles who's, who were divvying out the, the money in addition to preaching the word. We go now to Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37, and we'll finish up the chapter. Joseph, a Levite and a Cypriot by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, they later called him Barnabas when they got to know him, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet, which is very interesting. In the very, very beginning, we got Barnabas the apostle. Apostle, He's more famous, of course, in, in Acts because he was Paul's traveling companion at first. The scripture says he was a Levite, and he was called Barnabas, son of encouragement. Either his mama gave him that name, and his daddy gave him that name. 
I assume he lived up to it. I never thought about the fact, you know, a lot of times people give a name, they don't live up to their names. But he's famous for being an encourager, whether he was or not, I don't know. But anyway, he's right here at the very beginning of the church. So he was a very dedicated Christian. Now there's a problem. He sold land. He sold a field. And it, that verse also says he's a Levite. Levites weren't allowed to own land. So here's some options to solve that problem. The first option is from the NIV Study Bible. The law might not have applied to other countries like Cyprus, where Barnabas was from. The law that said that Levites couldn't own land obviously applied to Israel. It's, a que it's questionable whether it applied to other countries. Of course, Barnabas was from Cyprus, that island which is right off the coast of Syria and present-day Syria and Lebanon and Israel, south of Turkey. Option number two is to how we solve that problem of how Barnabas owned land even though he was a Levite. It could have been his wife's property, according to the NIV Study Bible. This assumes he was married. Option number three, perhaps the legal prohibition in the Pentateuch was no longer observed, according to the NIV Study Bible. Here's another option, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Option number four, maybe the Levite tribe could not inherit, but individuals could. I don't know the law well enough yet to know whether that's a reasonable answer or not, but there's plenty of options to solve this little problem of how a Levite happened to have land. Now, I mentioned he was an important companion of Paul. Let's run through Acts real quick and see where he shows up. Acts verses 13, this is at the first beginning of the first missionary journey. In the church that was in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, he was either a prophet or a teacher there. As they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. So Barnabas and Saul were called by the Holy Spirit to go on the first journey. Acts chapter 9, verse 27. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles. This is just after Paul had gotten converted. He didn't have cred with the Jerusalem apostles. He spent most of his time going around persecuting Christians and throwing them in jail. So Barnabas took Paul and explained to them, the people, the leaders in, in Jerusalem, how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and had talked to him. And so Barnabas is sticking up for Paul there in Acts 9 and Acts 11. Then the report about them was heard by the church that was at Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. This is Acts 11, verse 22. The report about them means the, uh, the, some men of Cyprus and Kyrene from northern Africa had come to Antioch, and so the church sent out Barnabas to go to Antioch to check it out. Acts 11, verse 25, then he, Barnabas, he, referring to Barnabas, went to Tarsus to search for Saul. Tarsus, of course, is relatively close to Antioch of Syria, Syrian Antioch, and Barnabas was commissioned to go to Tarsus. So you see, Barnabas was a big shot in the early church, in the early Jewish church. Acts 15, verses 37 through 39, Barnabas wanted to take along John Mark. This is on the second journey, but Paul did not think it was appropriate to take along this man who deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. There was such a sharp disagreement that they parted company, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. Barnabas went back to his stomping grounds to Cyprus. Mark, I think it was his cousin, if I remember correctly. And I also say that you can look at some of the 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 uh, closing closings in several of the New Testament letters, and in or at least one of the New Testament letters, and it says Paul and Barnabas. They got back together again. So Barnabas was big here in the early church. And it's interesting that Paul was from Tarsus, which is in, which is in uh, where is that, Cilicia, in southern Asia Minor, in southern Anato the southern Anatolian province. And Cyprus is right south of there, the island, and they were both areas that were outside of Israel, which means that they would probably know Greek better. 
they would probably be more well accepted by the Gentiles that they were going to end up preaching to in Turkey, in, in uh, Asia Minor. And so they had advantages, less prejudice from Gentiles, more facility in the Greek language. So as they got ready to preach in the Roman Empire, ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of Acts chapter four. In Acts chapter five, our next audio, we'll do the first 11 verses or so. And we'll talk about the story of Ananias and Sapphira and how they got laid out for their lying activity, holding back money from the common... Well, actually, that wasn't, I, that wasn't the crime. Their problem was lying about having given all their money to the apostles, to the church. We'll take that up next time. Hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this audio.